The early seeds of South Florida's fishing were planted in Miami and the water south to Key West. The early fishing clubs and their extensive awards initially helped build the sport of light tackle and saltwater fly fishing. The early pioneers were there and they all chased the variety of fish that the clubs demanded. Al Fluger was right in the middle of that gold rush and very few have ever earned the respect that this man had. Here is Al Fluger's Hall of Fame story. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. All right. Lock and load. Here we go. Al, it's so great to, to be with you, and thank you for allowing us to come into your home. It's a pleasure talking about things that I've loved and done in my lifetime. You've had a big life. Let's, uh, before we get into your life, let's just talk a little bit about what's happening right now. You know, we're in the middle of the COVID. It's 2020. It's election night, November 3rd. I mean, my God, the life that you've seen at 83 years of age, would you have ever imagined what this world is like right now? Well, I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure you do when I reflect on it. I saw a video one time of an Indian on a horse on the side of a hill looking down. Not only saw all the garbage that's there that the people have polluted this earth beyond almost recognition and to see what's going on that was then and what's happening now i'm not indians on that horse crying right it's it's, it's beyond sad i'm sorry beyond sad you know i was talking uh with bob branham yesterday and he was saying about Biscayne Bay, he said that when he started fishing, if it, would, if it was like that or like this back then, he would never have become a guide. It was so easy back then because the habitat was so pristine. It was crystal clear. It was uh, everywhere you went, whether it's skin diving or fishing. The abundance of fish in this environment back then was so pristine and the volume of fish were, you couldn't help but catch fish. <laughs> <laughs> it was easy. You were tripping over fish. There was so many fish. 
I witnessed bonefish schools in the spawning activities come by the boat for 27 minutes and never stop seeing the flow of bonefish dropping off to flats when the tide was falling. I just sat there in amazement. The whole back of the flat, my soldier's key was white with with uh, bonefish digging and feeding, and they were going into deep water for that length of time. You'll never, ever see anything like that in your lifetime. Your heart's broken, obviously. Oh, my God. They have ruined the bay to the point to where I don't think it's fixable. Really don't. The right. turtle grass, the all the industries that make a living in the bay, the shrimpers and how they uh, destroyed the bottom. Uh, and it's it's just sad to, to see see it happen that way. And as even though in my lifetime I've always been a conservationist, I've always uh, rallied to go to any meeting I could go to to see if I could make a change. And uh, I was had the pleasure of being with Florida Sports and Magazine for years, meeting Carl Wickstrom and Vic Dunaway, and uh, always trying to do more uh, in the conservation circle and follow Carl's lead in the in this trying to stop different things that were destroying the environment, fish wise traps, uh, pollution, netting, uh, and uh, I've always championed those causes, and uh, it's just sad now that. Uh, very few people are following that lead right. that the magazine had put forth. Do you think that um, Captains for Clean Water, the Everglades Foundation, now or never, BTT, do you think they're doing any good? I always champion the the, uh, the efforts by any group to follow that lead and follow that cause. Right. Uh, all we can do is try. And if you don't try, nothing's going to happen. Right. Even though I uh, feel that uh, the way things are now in this world. Too many people. Too many people. Too much money. It's all about power and money. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, power and money. For sure. Rules everything. Yeah. Let's go back to the good old days. What is what is the highlight of your fishing memories? Well, all I can say is in my fishing memories is uh, I was always blessed with uh, knowledgeable people that I've met that steered me in my quest to learn more than I knew about fishing. And who were they? And hunting. I could name celebrity names Endless that had directed me in, in this quest to be better at whatever I did. And uh, I found out that uh, you can learn so much from people if you want to learn and, and experiences. Some some things I learned that I didn't want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> and some things uh, I learned, oh, my God, why didn't you think about that? Why why did I envision this? And uh, that was always uh, 
exciting to me to be with people like that. And there are a lot of people that are smarter than I was. You know, um, I spoke to a couple of people the last few days, and I wanted to get a quote from a few. Norman Duncan said Al Fluger was only one of the very, very few that I respected. Flip Pallet, he said that your skill level was insane. He said Al caught the biggest and the most. He was the guy that could show you what was possible, and you'd do something. And Flip said in his own mind, about you doing what you were doing. He was quoted, I quote him saying, you can fucking do that? <laughs> you know, talking about some of the big fish that you used to catch amberjack off of wrecks and tease them away and then catch these fish. Um, and he said, you were the guy that, that could show you what was possible. You were always setting the bar the highest. I mean, those are pretty great accolades from. Well, Flip has uh, known him all his life. And uh, we had the pleasure of fishing together a lot. And uh, Flip and I uh, have the same love for the outdoors and the love of uh, the sport, whether it be hunting or fishing. Flip's an avid hunter. Right. Avid bow hunter. And he's incredible in anything that he does. Flip really understands the environment. And so few, so few people do. And they don't seem to want to put the effort to learn. There's so much to learn from people and the environments when you get involved with your passions. And we had similar passions in life. I wasn't a bow hunter. I tried it a few times. But I put most of my concentration in uh, my fishing and diving and hunting efforts uh, in that way. And... uh, I'd always want to be someplace where nobody else was. I want to be by myself. I want to break the code, as they say, in things that I do. I want to be the best that I could be for my own personal satisfaction. I don't care about what anybody thinks. Right. What I think is, you know, that I I, I did it. And that was my personal accolades for myself. You drove yourself harder than anyone else could have driven you. Because I knew it's possible. Right. If you want to pursue that. I find what was really amazing is that you didn't fish much with guides. You found out all this stuff and broke those codes by yourself. Yes. And I could tell you things that I learned by myself that I never shared with people because it make it too much easier. <laughs> you wanted to save those fish for yourself. Well, tell me about, you were saying too, that you learned a lot about being a successful fisherman through your diving. What did you see under the water that made you become the fisherman that you became? I was in their house, as they say, just like in hunting. When you are hunting, you're in their environment. You have to absorb being in their house and observing to the point to where you're standing back and watching the fish do their thing, feeding uh, uh, where they are in the currents, uh, when they come out, when they hear noises and things and what attracts them to you and from you, and all those things you put together. And you can learn so much, not only just underwater, 
But same thing above water. I mean, uh, in the hunting scenario, if you realize you're there as their guests say, that uh, you got to observe them and that's scare them, like bringing a semi-truck through your living room and that's when you're hunting. That <laughs> scares everything right. away. It's just like when you're fishing and you want to get to a school of fish. You don't zoom into them right away and scare the heck out of everybody. Right. You, you creep sneak in, in, you yeah. sneak in, you, you go upwind and drift down. There's a lot of ways to approach things. And if you know this and had other experiences, it's easy to be successful because you're making it happen. And underwater things make, you know, whether, whether it be hunting or fishing or anything that you do possible because you know how to do it. And that's something that people don't think about. How can I be better? How can I make this bait work or rig work or leader length or anything to make them not see my my hook or see my line or see my sinker, all kinds of things that you put together, you learn in being productive in, in your fishing abilities or hunting abilities, whatever. It's all observation. Sure. And you have to decipher that, but you have to not only think like an animal does, you have to think like a fish does and the responses and you got to learn a lot more than the average person wants to invest their time in understanding. That's mm -hmm. so important. I don't care whether it's sports or shooting or hunting or fishing. It's all the same. Right. You have to observe. You have to see what somebody else is doing better than you. And you can be not as good, but almost as good as somebody else. Who uh, was your, who was your biggest competitor or biggest inspiration during your time? If there was anybody like that, maybe a Ralph Delft, possibly, who was doing what you were doing better than you? Well, Ralph and I initially. go go way back uh, as a hunter and a, and a, a friend and a fisherman, and in fishing and his philosophy on how to do things better than the average captain can do because he understood the environment. He understood his adversary, which was a different species of fish. He knew how to catch them and how to do things that the average person wouldn't think about. Right. And those are the people that you respect because they're that good. Right. And I could name you names of guides that, oh, my God, I wish... <laughs> I wish it could be like them. <laughs> and some of them are just incredible fishermen. I mean, you talking about somebody like Steve Huff. When I was up at Homosassa Springs tarpon fishing, which I love by myself most of the time because I couldn't hardly get anybody <laughs> to pull my boat. I had to do it myself. <laughs> or, or anyway, he came by me one day pulling the opposite against the tide. And he always pulled against the tide. I never understood why until we, until we uh, talked about it. This and I said, the fish are coming this way. He, nobody wants to do that. They want to do it, it too hard. It's too right. hard. <laughs> but that's why he was successful. Right. And people like that are the best of the best. And they broke the code on how to be uh, getting their customers 
the opportunity to catch something. Did you have a favorite fish? My favorite fish always was tarpon. And why? I just love to see them jump out of the water. <laughs> and uh, they were very hard to hook, very hard to get them to bite. I always tied my own flies. I always experimented with hooks and sizes just like everybody did back in the day. And I tied thousands of flies, some good ones, some bad ones. Some of my friends were super fly tires, and they could make all the little uh, squirrel hair or whether it's uh, uh, chenille, whatever, uh, move in the water like it's alive. But it's just like anything else. It's how you wiggle your worm mm-hmm. whether you're going to catch a fish and to ex- get them excited. What makes a tarpon excited to eat something that's one inch long right. <laughs> like a worm? Right. <laughs> I mean, come on. You've got to understand why they're doing that, you know, and what turns them on and why you can catch more tarpon and, and get them to bite with small flies rather than you can these great big ones. I mean, come on. Right. That's what they're feeding on. That's, you know, interesting that you, you say with a worm that because you have to feed these animals. Absolutely. And, and Joe Rodriguez, I was speaking with him, uh, obviously, who admires you so much. And, and he was saying that you're probably the, one of the greatest human beings he's ever met and known. And he was talking about how you were the man, whether it be with a jig or a fly or any other bait that could catch more fish because you know how to get the bite. And yes. he, too, said that you told him a long time, if you want to catch a fish, you got to figure out how to wiggle your worm, <laughs> right? How to make it move, where to place the lure, what how the lure size and shapes and designs and what makes the, the lure attract fish same way with flies and jigs anything in our fishing club i learned how to use artificial lures dropping down into the deep water to catch scoopers and snappers and all kinds of pelagic fish and uh, certain movements of these certain designs lures turns the fish on. I mean, wow. They, you, you know how to dance that lure and get those fish to chase it. You got them. Same way with yeah. the tarpon. If you can throw it to a school of fish and leave that fly there as they're going by, they're going by one right after the other, and there's the fly right there. And all of a sudden you twitch it. You bump it. Here they one turns. You got that tarpon. Yep. Is yours? Yeah. If you know how to wiggle your wiggle worm. Your worm. <laughs> um, I was talking. Um, same, so way was with, a, same way with a jig. Right, for uh, sure. A uh, weighted lure. That's Same thing. Same thing. The um, flip, and uh, I was talking to Flip because I'd heard this rumor a long time ago that since you guys had the taxidermist over there, uh, Fluger Taxidermy, your father started it, and then you mm-hmm. had it. Uh, Flip was saying that when they were younger, they used to come over, he and Norman and maybe Chico, and you had a bunch of dead tarpon on the dock getting ready to be molded and mounted. Mm-hmm. They'd come over with some flies and hooks and stick them in the dead tarpon's face trying to figure out how to set the hook better. Do you remember that? Uh, that particular story, no. But uh, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever do that with any of the fish that were brought in? 
I observed everything about uh, the hardness of the mouth of a tarpon and where's the best place for the hook to be set and learn how to hook a tarpon by knowing that in, in my experience, as I say, break the code on how to strike a tarpon, where to hook a tarpon, and I hooked a tarpon in the same place 90% of the time. And you were proactive in being able to put that hook where he was hooked. Absolutely. I knew how to do it. How was that? And where was that placement on that fish's face? You want me really to tell <laughs> I know a little bit about it, but you might be able to... I mean, it's very in- intriguing that you as an angler had the ability to be proactive with where that hook was going to be set in that fish's face. Yes, you had to be or you were not going to be successful, especially in fishing tournaments. In fishing tournaments, I don't care who your guide is. They're all good. Some of them better than others. Some of them no more than others. But you average maybe seven to ten bites a tournament if you're lucky. Now, if you don't catch or don't hook seven out of ten bites that you get, you're not going to win the tournament. And you've got to be good enough to know, and you got to get the fish excited enough to know how to set that hook and where to set it and win. And that's something I learned how to do. And get to <laughs> the main point is that when that fish grabs the fly, you got to wait for him to turn right or left. And when he turns on a 45-degree angle and you hook him, you always hook him in this meaty part on the inside of the, the corner the corner, all the time. It's an easy place to get a hookup. It fly stays there all the time. With the jumps, it's just cartilage. It's not bone. You can't penetrate bone. You take an ice pick and hot knives, and you can't get through a jaw of a serpent. Right. You might get up here. It's the, two, right. two little places there. But what happens when you hook there, it's the worst place you can hook because your hook, when you're pulling the fish, turning Sideways. the fish. You bend it. Not only do you bend the hook, some hooks are brittle and they break and you're going to lose your fish. Right. And in time, when it goes back and forth, back and forth, it's just like metal. You break to where it crystallizes and breaks. Right. That's the worst place to hook a tarpon. You know, it's interesting because over the last number of years, I would say maybe close to eight to 10 years, a lot of the methodology with tarpon fishing has been fishing with a, with a small little worm fly. And the hook is a number one, not a one-aught, but a number one, a short shank gamagatsu. So the shank is very short, very sharp hook. And all the bites are like sips. Most of them are sips where they come up and sip the worm. And with a double-handed strip, there's no longer, I used to have a problem when the fish ate that fly hard. I'd kind of get a little too active with the right hand, set a little bit too early. And obviously you got to wait for it to get tight. But I find 90% of our hooks now are set in that upper button area, that upper lip. There's no fraying because the monofilament is outside the fish's mouth. And the success is incredibly huge. It might be for you, but it wasn't for me. Well, I think, too, 
that back in the day, the difference in the hooks, I, th- I think we, when I first started fishing the Gold Cup, big ones, the longer shank, yeah, you know, kept getting smaller so smaller. now you have more leverage with that longer shank, the, the old 3407 SS yeah. Yeah, Mustad, yep. and then you hand filed the thing, yep. the same hook that you guys used to use. Oh, we graduated from those all the way down to the smaller sizes and the ones that uh, are uh, not as brittle and, and a little bit more supple. So you wouldn't break them. Right. The success the, became better. Yes, became better. But I always believe that uh, the hook set when the fish turns gives me better results for tournament fishing and fishing in general for tarpon. Right. And uh, I learned how to catch a tarpon when he's coming straight at me. And nobody ever showed me how to do it. I just accidentally figured this out by myself. How'd you do that? What was your success I'm going to ask you a question. How did you do that? What I would do is if a fish was coming straight at me. And ate the fly. And ate the fly and kept coming. And he's right there. Yeah. You know what I would do? If I couldn't get tight, I'd strike him as hard as I could with a trout strike straight up just to get the point into his face just a little bit. And I can't seat the hook. I can't get it really tight, so it's not going to go to the bend. But at least I could get tight to the fish, and then I'd stomp on the boat. And when the fish would turn, I'd lower my rod and get it up against my belly and then set the hook. Well, I do basically the same thing. But when that fish eats the fly and he comes down on it, I jump off the front platform or a cooler or wherever I'm sitting or jump down in the middle of the boat, bam, like that. And that fish turns right or turns left. And so it's the same thing. You scare it, the fish. But you scared fish. Yeah. And that fish, what he does, he closes his mouth hard. He's not spitting a fly out. Right. He's getting out of dodge. Right. <laughs> and then when he turns, now you can get tight. And I hook him there every time. Yeah. That's how I make my hook set that way. On those two occasions, straight on or waiting for a fish to turn to hook him to get it right there. And to me, it, it broke the code every time. But we did something similar. I was smashing yeah, the boat right. with my foot, and you were jumping off that cooler and making I some sort that, of— I wanted that fish to be, to be scared to death. Yeah. You know what? I don't think really there are that many people that still to the at this time of of— this world of tarpon fishing really understand that. I don't know how many people are stomping the boat or making a sound to get that fish to turn to set the hook. You got to fish a lot to learn <laughs> to do that and not being successful. Things like this, when you learn that that happened, yeah, think about it. The Why day. did it happen? Why did I get this hook up when I couldn't before? Right. Then you go backwards and say, "Oh shit, that was it. That was it." Yeah. How did you won the uh, the gold cup in '72, which became the greatest fly fishing? It was originally like a, I think a bait all tackle tournament, the gold cup tarpon tournament. It, it, you know, in the early years, wasn't it? Well, it was fly, spin, and plug, and the weight fish was seventy pounds. That was your weight fish, seventy pounds or more. And uh, Lynette and Pete Simon started the tournament. And back in the day, and uh, Joan Salvedo was a sponsor for a trophy in that particular tournament that I won, and it was for a weight fish on fly, a weight fish on spin, and a weight fish on plug. The and trifecta. Got, and I got the trifecta. When did it become an all-fly tournament? After I won it. <laughs> 
They said it'll never happen again. So they didn't sponsor the trophy anymore. Interesting. Did you continue to, to, to fish in the tournament after you won in 72? A couple of three more years. Yeah. And why'd you stop? I'd rather not say. You didn't like the participants? No. Participants are fine. The format? No. It was uh, a lack of respect for the rules. Oh, cheating. Beyond belief. How were they cheating back then? Because back then you had to bring your fish in and it had to be weighed. Cheating can be accomplished by a lot of ways. Leaders that are this long, instead of 12 inches. Not IGFA legal. They're 18 to 25 inches long, brought into the dock, coiled up, still in the fish's mouth, and there's no judgment on that. No rules keeper. No rules keeper. Yeah, interesting. And I've witnessed, I was fishing on Buchanan Bank one time, where it is a parade of boats because it's a simple place to fish. Here they come. And uh, I saw in one day three fly rods broke, blew up from the trying to, <laughs> trying to hook a fish because of the leader uh, strength was so severe. I don't know why pound tested. The mono wouldn't break. It wouldn't break, but the rods would blow up, and these rods were good rods. I mean, these were the sages. These were the the good ones uh, in the day. You couldn't hardly break a rod back. And and back then, too, the tournament was a 16-pound test monofilament tournament, right? Supposedly. Yeah. It wasn't. Supposedly. Interesting. And uh, people do things sometimes that uh, are questionable uh, in those regards. And it was so blatant from my observation that I said, I'm out. I'm out. I yeah. just, I, I can't compete. Uh, I'm a, I don't want to compete with cheaters. I don't want to compete with cheaters. Right. I don't. What's your greatest success? Probably with three children. I love my kids. And uh, it was a joy in my life. And uh, they pursued outdoor things. Both both my sons were commercial lobster fishermen. And uh, they loved the outdoors. And that was their office. And I embrace that. Right. They pursue their, their, uh, their uh, wants and wishes as far as making a living. They made a fairly good living. My daughter became a court reporter. And she's not dependent on anybody else but herself so she can make better choices in life and not have to do things that you don't have to do. And uh, I told her a long time ago, you can't depend on another person. You got to depend on yourself to make a living. Then you have more choices in life. You have a freedom. And she uh, thanked me for that. Yeah. Last time I saw you, I think we were at Flamingo, and I saw this big old boat, and you were sitting, and I don't know what it was. Could have been anything. I designed a lot of boats <laughs> and helped. What, did, did you have a preference uh, over the years, or your spectrum was so vast, you know, with the wreck fishing, you had the artificial reef, you know, that you helped build 
and it's called the, uh, I think the Fluger Reef, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Did you have a preference for shallow water fish, tarpon and with flies and shallow water bonefish or offshore, or did you just have just such a vast passion that you just went fishing depending on the weather? Well, the weather wasn't a problem for me because I, at the time, had the best boats. I had uh, people that would help me in a lot of different ways and my desires for a boat in making it fishable in all weather situations and design boats. I befriended Dick Genth, who was the president of Thunderbird Boat Corporation back in the uh, late uh, 60s, early 70s. And I asked him if, if he would take his cabin boats, you know, the 23-foot formula deep feet, and make it into a fishing boat where I could carry 30 rods, <laughs> you know, or have a uh, coffin box and uh, uh, all kinds of innovative things that I would like to incorporate in an open fishing boat for I can fish Key West with and fish offshore with, whether it be sword fishing, whether it be deep dropping, whether it be light tackle fishing. If I got the boat, I can accomplish all these things. And he was kind enough to say, I'll, I'll build it for you, whatever you want. And he, he built the boat exactly how I want it. And let me tell you, in the day, it was nothing like it. It was a machine. Mm -hmm. I had a Ross Fine Line depth decoder that could see 2,000 feet down fish on the bottom. And you can see, and the way they would congregate on the chart could tell what species of fish they were. Wow. You can tell by the congregation of whether it's snappers, groupers, amberjacks, over different things. With that technology in the day when nobody could afford these machines, that was amazing. You could run over wrecks 30 miles an hour and record them on this machine. <laughs> Back up. Can you imagine that? Well, I know when technology. I was, yeah, when I was reading, you know, some of the stuff on the internet about you and and about the early years when, you know, you didn't have GPS to find a wreck and you used to have to run with a compass and a time about landmarks and stuff. Tell me about that that era. Well, when you had to run for one of the best wrecks, which is looking back wreck back in the day in the in the Gulf of Mexico, if you knew the current incoming and outgoing tide current variation from point A to point B, you could predict within so many yards of being successful running 14.2 miles from Smith Shoals Light to that wreck with just a compass. But you got to know the speed of your boat. And you got to know, and you have to maintain that speed within a, a mile or a half a mile. You're not going to find it. You're more successful with three boats doing it than you are with yeah. one boat. But not too many people uh, could do it with one boat. Could do it with one boat. And I would do it successfully one out of three times. What a pain, right? You get out there and you can't find your wreck because you're off by a half a mile an hour or the current. You can't let people go from the front of your boat to the back of the boat. You can't change weights. You can't change speeds. And you, you're locked in for... 45 minutes to an hour going that speed that your boat is going like 23 miles an hour and break it down how long it's going to take you to get there. And if you accomplish that, 
did not move and got the seas in your favor and the tide don't change on you, you got a chance of finding it. But how do you, you figure that all out? Friends and I communication that were pilots and uh, how they used it, to, how they knew how many minutes it would take from the last buoy of, uh, uh, of uh, Northwest Channel to Smith Shoals. That was the code to break. Once you broke that code for your boat at that day with that wind, uh, you know, uh, for your speed to be maintained, you can't go too fast because beat the crap right. out of you. And you got to have the certain sea conditions to maintain that the, window. The timing. Timing. Yeah. Critical. And uh, you got to have your, your uh, Clorox jugs with rope tied <laughs> around it. But I made a mistake one time. I used a round ball. So when I threw the marker over, and I'm searching back and forth, and I know where that wreck's right or left, you know. All of a sudden, I figured out that round ball's rolled on the bottom. It's not where I threw it. So I was lucky that I f the current stayed the same. So I backtracked that way, and I found a wreck because the ball had moved so many yards that way over a period of time till I figured out that ball's moving on the bottom. So those things, you got to figure out, break the code, because you're there all day right? if you don't get the wreck. The, um, it must have kind of broken your heart, if you will, when GPS came out and everybody could find everything so easily. Game changer. Day or night, every, everybody's, everybody. The traffic jam was the on. traffic jam. And it was over. It was over. There's no more surprises. There's no more navigation. Did, the, no did you see a big depletion of the fish? Because everybody now is catching. Day or night. They're where they're. It was, it was no secrets anymore. Is there any, is there any good news with fishing today? Well, the, the good news was for me, I experienced it all. Right. And the things that I, I and the friends that I befriended and the friends that were in fishing clubs that had the same mindset of learning and wanted to be be good at what they're doing. Oh, my God. It was it was just amazing to be in that era. Oh, and my God. The fishing must have been out, outrageous. It was beyond outrageous. The Ballyhoo schools in the wintertime were so vast and so large that you go out of Key West Harbor and go to Western Dry Rocks or Eastern Dry Rocks, a reef out there. On the way out, millions of Ballyhoo are showering. Mutton snappers like this, amberjacks, barracudas, big cereal mackerel exploding the Ballyhoo. Get your heart <laughs> pumping. Oh, Wait, my God. What year was this? In the uh, late 60s or early 70s. And all we were doing was chasing the schools, Ballyhoo, from Dry Rocks all the way down to Cosgrove Lighthouse. Acres and acres and acres of showering Ballyhoo got your heart going. And we weren't using lures. We weren't using bait. We were, we were using chugger plugs that Bob McChristensen, who uh, designed the uh, Seamasters. Master. Right. 
he's the one that designed these plugs, and we would purchase them from him. And to see a sailfish or 50-pound grouper or mutton snapper or zeros come up and eat those chuggers when you're chugging them on the surface. Right, how much fun. Fun. To see that explosion. <laughs> I mean, that gets the heart pumping. We That's all we fish with, artificial. We didn't use bait. There's no need to. No need to. <laughs> Topwater bait or I mean, topwater plugs. I had a six-foot-long coffin box insulated that uh, I had made for my boat as a combination, not only the, the uh, steering station, but in combination that was the uh, uh, fish box in one unit. They put it down in my boat with one unit. God, it was amazing. It would keep ice for days and days. I don't care how much fish you put in it. <laughs> so, uh, how exhausted were you back then, fishing day and night? And I was young like you are now, and I was doing it. It, I would go sword fishing three nights in a row and not sleep. <laughs> Just can't wait to get out there and catch a sword fish. What was that like back then? Because now, obviously, with the Stanzix, you know, well, he innovating brought, day, yeah, day, he, daytime sword fishing. Yeah. What was sword fishing like? Uh, back in in your day, when the when the Cuban Revolution and all the uh, refugees came, they knew how to catch swordfish commercially, and they would take two by fours with uh, 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 kerosene uh, wick lights on the top of them and put their long lines out. And when you go out, say a thousand feet of water thereabouts, is where the drop off or usually the bite is at nighttime. Because the swordfish uh, would come up and feed on the uh, squid, which is on the on the uh, about sixty foot down in the thermocline, and that's where all the squid are, and that's where all the bait are, and that's where all swordfish are at nighttime. Right. And uh, you would drop down from 60, 90, 120, and two forty, and I had four rods all set up for that for the drift right. for sword fishing. And the uh, the Latin showed me how to where to be because you could see those out there. I was the only boat out there except the drug boats. <laughs> they were out there. I got my lights on. Here comes cigarette boats, sixty miles an hour or faster. <laughs> by me. I'm here. I'm here. Don't run don't, over me. <laughs> don't don't drop it was, here, please. Were they prolific? Like all the time? All the time. In, In the eighties. Oh my god. And all of a sudden, I learned how drifting, you know, I'm here at nighttime, four o'clock in the morning, waiting for a bite or I already caught one or whatever. And all of a sudden, I, I hear, and I wake up, I, I look to my left, and here's a cruise ship coming at me. <laughs> you don't know how fast those things are going. It took me to the point... To get those four rods out without cutting the lines to right. get out of their way. Because they can't move. They won't move. No. <laughs> right, right over, you're dead. Did you ever feel like you, you came close to dying in any way, sinking a boat, bad weather, big storms? One time I was at uh, Balvanera Wreck, and the front came in faster than I expected it to come. And here comes the clouds rolling in with that front moving in from the uh, north towards Key West. And I'm saying, I, I don't know if I can outrun this or not, and start getting getting pretty bad. And I was with my boat, 
I was climbing 12, 13, 14-foot ways going up, and I had a pair of 165-horsepower Mercruisers in my boat, so I had power. But it wasn't enough <laughs> to go over these short waves that were up. So what would happen when I tried to get over the wave to come back down again, I would slide backwards. Oh, my God. And when I slid backward into the V... I would go under the water because the weight of those the back end of the back boat. end of the boat, they would come in. That's how you sink. And the swamp the back part of your boat. Yeah, the holes for the drain to go into the uh, the the bilge where the pumps are weren't big enough for that volume of water. Of water, so you have to flounder until you get it pumped out again to make another attempt to do this. And I'm saying to myself, man, this isn't good. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, uh, it subsided enough to where I was able to make headway and uh, get back to Smith Shoals Light and get in Northwest Channel. But it was nip and tuck there for a while. Right. And another time I was uh, in a place that you wouldn't think you would have a problem. I was off of... Uh, Flamingo to a place uh, that was about, I think it's 20-something miles offshore uh, to where it's a freshwater spring. And that was a place a lot of people would go because there was permit. There was uh, mangrove snappers like this, all kinds of species of fish. And it was a big hole there where this freshwater spring would bubble up and uh, the fish would gather because all the bait and everything was there. So we fished that one day. My friend wanted me to come out with him, and he had a 24-foot boat with a 300 mercury on it. And uh, so we got out there. Fishing was good, and all of a sudden, here comes a cold front that we didn't expect to come, come so fast. And it got unbelievably rough. It was so rough for that 24-foot boat, which was a, Pretty big up, up big there. boat, right? And it had the power, and uh, the waves started getting so big. It was doing the same thing as the, my other story was about. Couldn't the, climb the wall. Couldn't climb the wall, and the wind picked up directly in our face because he was heading the boat towards Flamingo to get in that way. And uh, after an hour, and the water coming over the transom, and the same thing pumping it out and getting the water out, we looked at the GPS, and we had gone three miles back the other way. Backwards. <laughs> Backwards. So I says, I won't mention names. I says to my friend who was captaining the boat, time out. We're going the wrong way. We're going to run out of gas. Go Shark River way and go with the wind, we'll get back alive. He says, I never thought of that. <laughs> I, said, I said, I want to live. <laughs> so we went back there, went to back away with his boat, which is not a problem because you right. got markers all the way back then. Sure. To back to the Flamingo. So go get your trailer car over here and bring it to the other parking lot. <laughs> we'll bring your boat up there. And that's what we did. That saved our life. You know, you've got to be, uh, you, you got to be think thinking all the, the time. All the time.
What was it uh, like, you know, back in the day with all the uh, the clubs at, in Miami? You know, that you had the Met going on, the Miami Rod and Reel Club. What? How significant was that? Because it's not as much now as it was back then. I mean, that was where the game was really played. All those. Well, it's two different venues. All businessmen, all all the doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, all the affluent people. They had the money. They had the big yachts. They had the big boats. They hired the guides. Uh, if you want it, you can buy it. You know, you can. Right. They had the time to go anywhere in the world to fish. But the clubs that I belong to, Miami Sport Fishing Club, Tropical Angler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of other smaller clubs had no guides. They had the rules where you had to guide yourself. You had to do things yourself. And the records that you were fishing for was uh, four-pound test, six-pound test, ten-pound test, spin, five, spin, plug, general tackle. And to accomplish those things with artificial lures in those categories, it was amazing. It was a challenge. I relished in all that challenge. So that's, that's kind of like what inspired you and a bunch of others to oh become the fisherman that you became. To catch fish like uh, I caught a 26-and-a-half-pound amberjack on four-pound spin. took me two-and-a-half hours. But I didn't break them off. I, you got them. I got them. What an accomplishment. Right. Fortunately, I had the time and I had the boat and equipment to do a lot of these things where other people weren't as fortunate. Right. And at one time, I had over 50% of all the records in the fishing club. Wow. Because uh, it was hard for them to compete. That way, because I had the boats, I had the right. time and had the knowledge to do all this. But I didn't do it for the accolades. I did it because I, I, I knew I could do it. What's the greatest fish you've ever caught? Is there one such animal? Well, it's really not size as right. much as it is with the challenge of catching a fish of uh, certain species right and uh it's an adversary i mean you're you're fighting one-on-one -on -one with all different species of fish that kick your ass and tarpon <laughs> will humble you how some of them are marathon runners you couldn't kill that fish they are so strong and they have the muscle fibers they have the will I don't care what pound test, somebody, especially 12 pound. I mean, it's almost right. insane to, to whip a fish on 12 pound test. So that's test 12 pound. Right. Oh my God, they're I, marathon. I don't, if you get a marathon runner on, just break him off. He doesn't want to jump. He doesn't <laughs> no, want to get tired. He, he will jump. No. He never gets tired. So I, how, fought, so I how, fought a tarp in 11 and a half hours because I was stubborn. My hand was cramped for two days. I couldn't move. <laughs> But I caught him. And how big was that fish? Not big enough. <laughs> but what I was, I was, I just wanted to do it. What about that, uh, that fish that Tom Evans caught on twelve? That one ninety four, that tarpon that he has in the record book. We fished together a lot. What was what was he like to fish with? Intense. Like Rec you, like records, you, records only, only, 
Only. In Home Assassin. In Home Assassin. He had the best guides. He had Al DePeric. Oh, my God. He had the best. Keep on going. Who else did he fish with in the early years? Steve, Steve Huff. Oh, Steve Huff, right. We call him the Huffer. The Huffster. <laughs> he did, because I, th- I think he went from Steve to Al. Well, Steve got, you know. Right. Anyway, uh, story about uh, one of his uh, fishing trips with Steve. He happened to eat something bad one night and got intestinal flu. And he was continually going and sick. Yeah. sick. So he's hanging over the back of the boat, and here comes a school of fish. Steve says, Tom, can I catch one? Have at it. Makes the cast. You know what that fish weighed? 187. New world record. But he never, never submitted it. How could he? <laughs> he can't compete with his customers. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, my God. <laughs> Tell me about your uh, the uh, the taxidermy uh, that your father started. Right. You know, at one point, you guys had like 9,000 fish going through the process. Um, 12 to 15,000 most, most of the year. 12 to 15. You guys mounted over a million fish. But interesting, you said that you never really had much respect for a plastic fish because it wasn't the fish that you caught. Well, it, it, it was, wasn't a skin mounted fish. It wasn't the memory that you should that I wanted. Right. And uh, that was then. Now it's different. Uh, I always regarded you should have what you shot or shot, what you caught. You want somebody else's. You don't want a plastic replica because right. you call on telephone and send me a 200-pound tarpon. Look what I caught. You know? Right. But to me— But that, that was a business. And, it was a, a business. lot of people didn't relate to that. Well, it was— It was a replica of their fish. Yeah. But it saved a lot of fish— I mean, conservation is based about based on catching and releasing. Now people can catch a fish, release it, call your business. Hey, I caught a 150-pound tarpon, you know, 72 inches to the fork. Do you have one? So now that fish is still out there living, and they've got the mold. Right. But you wanted your fish. That's one of my fish. With a hole in it. And uh, in the process of uh, taxidermy, I learned a lot of things, how to do things different in taxidermy and how to, uh, the most important thing in for taxidermy is to recreate the colors of the fish because there are live colors and there are dead colors in fish. Most of the uh, customers always see dead colors because that's the fish photograph it's that fish is at the dock dead dead, right and the color is totally different right it's like the iron of a billfish right versus the blues oh my god the uh, iridescence and the tone you can accomplish with airbrushes because i airbrushed for 10 years before my dad passed away and got to really understand colors and understand how to blend colors and things and that, to me, was so creative. I enjoyed that immensely. The artistry the of painting. The artistry of painting. Right. And I broke the code on how to make tarpon silver. And how, what was that called? Nobody's that ever code. done it. And I don't know why they hadn't thought about it. General Motors, when they would take all their plastic products 
they would electroplate them. Now, you can electroplate most anything and put that chrome finish on it. I electroplated tarpon in a machine. Kingfish, wahoo, all the bright colored fish. Then paint the lacquer cellulose base paints over the top of that. The results were outstanding. What year was that? Do you remember? The uh, the year I sold my company to Shakespeare Corporation. And you know, you know what? They broke my heart. Because they went by me a machine to do this process. They didn't agree to spending $5,000 at the time for this machine. To make it To make it perfect. I had I broke the code how to make it perfect, and they don't they they didn't they, care about losing the combination. I learned about corporate business. <laughs> it's all about money. What was it like for you to see this process as a young man? Is that what got you into fishing, or did your dad take you and show you? what the ocean, what the water, what these fish were like, or how did you first get connected with fishing? He was, uh, he, he had a boat that, uh, that he designed at the time, a wood boat that he could use t- to deep drop here in Florida and all, and, and all through the islands. He was always curious about the fish that were 1,000 feet down or wow. 2,000 feet down. And we would go to the Bahamas with some of the best guides, like Tommy Gifford. He was amazing mentor to me when I was young. He taught me so much about light tackle fishing, so much about skin diving, so much about catching your own ballyhoo with nets. I mean, this guy was incredible. And I learned how to deep drop with my dad and catch these incredible fish. How old are you then? 14 years old. I got pictures of me catching a cow shark, <laughs> which back then was a six-year-old shark and that would live in, in, in that depth of water. And when I was a small boy, 14 years old, I'm looking at this fish coming up from 1,000 feet down. Spiraling. And all, I could, all I could see was an emerald glowing eye. It was like a, a siloom, you know, the party siloom's. Right illuminated hundreds of feet down and here he's getting brighter and brighter and brighter fish coming out. What is that? That is so cool. Did you love fishing right away? Do you remember a moment where all of a sudden you thought, I like this is gonna be my life? Well Or was this an evolution of a family? Well it's kind of an evolution in a lot of different ways. My dad was a hunter. He loved a duck hunt. And I would go with him on wading, wading in and uh, like a gochobi for puddle ducks and uh, other species of ducks that would inhabit the shallow water, you know, and uh, enjoyed that aspect of it. And he was always involved in a hunting club, like uh, Etchens Gun Club. It was on a rock pit off of 103rd Street and uh, 27th Avenue about then. So he taught me how to shoot a shotgun in clay target shooting. And by 13 years old, I was good enough that I won the Florida State Championship when I was 13 years old. Wow. And I only missed four targets out of 100. 
and one I think it was uh, he uh, he bought me in the Calcutta. <laughs> I think, he knew. He think he he won about two thousand dollars in the Calcutta for that accomplishment. So I not only won that when I was thirteen years old because I got good enough to to do it, right. and you know I knew how to shoot shotgun, right, and. Uh, also, uh, at that time, I started getting excited about racing cars. So I, was, I said, man, this is cool. I want to race cars. There was drag strips, Millie Earhart, uh, Homestead, Homestead Speedways. And me and my buddies would put these dragsters together and put Oldsmobile engines in, uh, in uh, these cars back then. And, I had the need for speed, man. I said, God. Fast boats and fast this cars. This is crazy fun. So that year, I won the Florida State Drag Championship in Sebring, Ohio. You know who was alongside of me for the final run? Don Garlitz. Big Daddy. Big Daddy. Right. I beat him. Did you really? You know why I beat him? His engine blew up. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you had a faster foot. <laughs> I made it down to the end. And then who bought that dragster and wanted the trophy that I won that was this tall? He, he, Big Daddy. No. Uh, Hal DuPont III wrote me out a check. Wanted your car. Wanted <laughs> my car. I said, I'm done. That's crazy. <laughs> I won the championship. <laughs> Now, how, how, you were you were obviously a great athlete. I was good in sports. Yeah, had a lot of records in school. What dividend? I was a ping pong champion. Right. What dividend did that play as a as a fisherman? Your athleticism. A lot. My height uh, gave me the advantage of seeing further. My ability to have reflexes from sports that I played. Hunting and fishing, mm-hmm. shotguns, everything. Gave me the edge. I was very coordinated. Had to be, mm-hmm. be good at those things. And uh, so I had the edge. And also I learned how to fly cast against the wind, which uh kind of hard to learn how to do. I had a lot of hooks cut out of me. I had a lot of my ears. <laughs> And uh, once you get a few of those cut out, you learn a different way to do it. Right, right. And uh, so those abilities helped a lot. Was hunting, was your passion for hunting paralleled your your fishing passion? Or were you always more of a passionate fisherman than hunting? Because obviously you became a great hunter and you you hunted all around the world. I enjoyed the challenge of being in somebody else's environment, you know, uh, animal's environment, and not letting them know I'm there, and to outsmart them and uh, understand them. Once you understand your adversary, it's not hard. How important was the kill versus the hunt? Not at all. You know, it's kind of funny because... This year it was I killed two elk this year, but I haven't had a shot in four years. You don't have to to have the experience, but just to be in the hill or on that mountain at eleven thousand feet in my it, sleeping bag, bugling it, elk. Isn't it wonderful? It's the journey. Yes, 
And that's what people don't understand about the quest of doing things, hunting and fishing. It's the journey. Yeah. It's rigging the tackle, making your own flies, making your own leaders. And I never had anybody do anything for me. I always did it myself because I knew I could do it better. The anticipation too. Oh, absolutely. Is a a big part of the joy because a lot of times you get out there and it sucks. It's windy and blowy, blowing, raining, but the, but the anticipation of the whole week leading up to those five days of fishing the excitement, is just as much. The excitement of knowing that you're going to Key West on a weekend fishing trip or elk hunt or going to Africa or going wherever you're going. Right. That's the journey. Getting to that point. Right. You say that tarpon was your was your favorite fish to chase. Um, what's your, What was your favorite animal or bird and why? I, I, I guess, like we talked before, was the turkey. The turkey is the hardest bird to harvest, especially the older gobblers, two, three, four-year-old gobblers. They are the boss, and it's hard to trick the boss because you're in his house, and he knows you're there, and he knows how far away you are, <laughs> which is incredible. I, I witnessed a turkey... 300 yards away, strutting in a field. And I peeked around the tree to get a better look at him. He saw me turn around, gone. gone. 300 yards away. I could barely see him myself. <laughs> how, 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 how do you kill one? Yeah, how do you kill a turkey? You got to have the patience and the experience to know when and where? When and where? Yeah. It's not to kill. I just have as much fun as he from here to there. I got the boss gobble; he's mine, right? And not shoot him. This year we had a a great experience in Montana where we had lost most of our morning hunt. It was around nine. We were up on a big butte, and and Nikki goes, "Wow, look at that big elk down there!" It was on a on a budding ranch, seven hundred yards away or so, really a long way away. Big bull. And I let out a, loud, a really loud cow call, as loud as I could. And he heard it, and he turned around and bugled. And I, I called again. He bugled again, and here he came. And we pulled that animal 700 yards, and the ranch barrier was a, a fence line about 100 yards below us. He came up, walked the fence line a little bit. I thought maybe he might not jump. But, you know, Shortly thereafter, he hopped the fence and came in, and I shot him at 40 yards. But just the dynamics of that communication in pulling that animal with Nikki behind a decoy, cow calling and cow calling and massaging it and letting it marinate. If that doesn't make your hair stand on end that is, and your heart jump out of your out of your throat. That's what it's all about. I've done that a number of times and didn't get the kill. But this year, I was so damn happy to finally kill one. Because yeah. at some point, you want to be successful, obviously. But your perseverance, you've experienced things that uh, the average person sitting behind a desk never experienced, and that's the outdoors. And what a blessing to have experiences like you have, plus your bow hunting. That's the hardest way to harvest any animal is with a bow because you're that close. you got to be that close to be successful, and you got to practice and practice and practice. 
because you're ethical. You don't want to wound an animal, and uh, you have to have that placement correct or don't shoot. Right. And a lot of people don't have the dis- discipline not to shoot. Right. But that's not the reason you're there. You already accomplished why you're there. You're in the outdoors. Yeah. You see the animal. You got him on a rope. (laughs) What better experience than that? Yeah. Just exciting. Yeah. Beyond kids nowadays growing up don't have any experiences. Computers. Cell phones. Cell phones. Social media. Where is the outdoors? It's gone. It's so sad that that those kids nowadays don't have parents to show these experiences to them and share them with them. Sad. What a great life you've led. You have no idea what I've done and where I've been. Been to with Pete Backwin in in Kiribati with his vessel that he spent millions of dollars on. He used to own the Chicago stockyards, him and his brother. <laughs> You're talking about wealth. He had a satellite feed to his yacht that he had designed and built to travel all around the world, any place he would want to go. Send his captain and his girlfriend on the boat to his next destination. Every two weeks, he was in a different place. What a life. If you had one, one week in your memory bank, what week would that week be that you'd like to relive? And where would you be and it's, if you had any? I don't think there was anything. Uh, that particular? That particular because it was all. So great. So great. I mean, people just don't have an idea right. back then what it was like. What's your life like now? Going to doctors. <laughs> Uh, is, it, is it frustrating? Uh, or are you okay with it? I have good memories, good friends, and uh, it's good enough for now. But, you know, uh, those things, uh, what's special is that uh, I've had so many procedures done to stay alive. I had two brain surgeries. In a coma, five days. Doctor says he's a goner. That was six years ago. And uh, but I came back. Took me six months to learn how to walk, to talk, to get to where I could take care of myself. Then I started getting heart issues. I had six stents in my heart. I got three stents in my stomach. I got uh, two hand surgeries, back surgeries. So I'm kind of the bionic. You're a warrior. <laughs> I was in the hospital six weeks eating something that was either green, yellow, or white. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't identify it. Got poked every 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 5 a.m. in the morning for blood work up to, mm-hmm. to stay alive. But the challenge was I'm going to make it. Yeah. Well, it's great having you. Well, I look at it this way. I take photographs of my phone every morning of the sunrise, send them to all my friends, and say, this is the best day of my life. I woke up. (laughs) What can you say? Right. I woke up again. Yeah. I'm still here. Love you. You too. 
Al Fluger's larger-than-life story is immortal, and we were blessed to have been welcomed into his home. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.